Hi, everyone. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and thanks for downloading our very first episode of Fifth in Mission. We're going to bring you all into our newsroom, the place where we work every day, and explain a little bit more about how we go about reporting the news. Joining me is my co-host, Metro editor Damian Bulwa. And Damian, what are we trying to do here? Well, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to co-host with you. The, the goal here is really to take people into the biggest stories in the Bay Area, and we're going to take you behind the scenes. We're going to show you how we report those stories. I think it's really going to be a lot of fun because I know there are a lot of questions out there about how we do our jobs. Every time I go out in the community, I get people asking me, how do you decide what to cover? How do you decide what goes on the front page? How do you report these stories? And I think people are really surprised when you explain the level of preparation and thought and work by so many people that goes into just one story. Yeah, and we have a lot of amazing reporters here that we want to introduce you to. We have reporters who specialize in topics from food to business to sports, and we have reporters who spend weeks at the fire zones, and we want them to come back and tell you what it was like. As you all can tell, Damien and I are really excited about this first show. So without further ado, here is the first episode of Fifth Admission. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Damian Bulwa, Metro Editor. And this is Fifth in Mission. A podcast where we dive into the biggest stories of the day. Today on Fifth in Mission, we chat with writer Lizzie Johnson. Now, most people might know Lizzie from her moving coverage of the California wildfires, but during our wet winter, she dove in to tell the searing story of a family affected by a teenager's suicide on the Golden Gate Bridge. We'll talk about that story and how Lizzie manages to find the incredible details that color her stories. That's today on Fifth Emission. We'll be right back. Hi, Lizzie. Welcome to Fifth Emission. Thank you. So we're going to talk about one of your recent stories that focused on a boy named Kyle Gamboa. Why don't you tell us who is Kyle Gamboa? So Kyle Gamboa was an 18-year-old who lived in Fair Oaks, which is a Sacramento suburb. And in September 2013, on a completely normal day, instead of going to school, he hopped in his truck, drove all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge, and jumped, leaving his family completely stunned and confused as to why he had done it. So suicides on the Golden Gate Bridge have been with us probably since the bridge was constructed. And we've written a lot about it over decades. What was it about Kyle and his family and where we are with the bridge and the issue of suicides that made you want to do this story? Yeah, so just for context, the first suicide on the Golden Gate Bridge, they think, was about three months after it opened. So this has been a really persistent problem, basically, since it opened. And I think we've tried to write about it in a lot of different ways. But there was something about Kyle's mom, Kimberly Renee, who was just, she's such a compelling woman. Like, she exposes her grief, and it's so raw still, even six years later. And she has really taken on the suicide deterrent system as her cause. And she's there at every single bridge meeting, which if you remember that she lives in Sacramento, which is a two-hour drive one way. It's like pretty incredible that she's there with her husband, sometimes her older son, pushing for this time after time. And I thought that it was a good time to bring that story up because there's still a little bit of pushback in some ways about this deterrent system where... Deterrent system seems like such a 
fancy word. Why don't we talk about what is the deterrent system that has been proposed and is being built or yeah. going to be built? So it is a net. It is 380,000 square feet, costing $200 million. And it started construction last year. And they're anticipating that it'll be done by January 2021. But we'll, we'll see if that happens. You know how these projects tend to get sidelines. Um, but Kimberly Renee was a big reason why it moved forward the way it did. And we had been discussing whether or not to have a suicide net on the bridge for a really long time. Why are people still reluctant to think that this is a good idea? I think it's that that question of, you know, some people still go back and forth on whether this is a public nuisance or a public health crisis. And I think, you know, things are really changing in terms of how people think about mental health and they're more accepting of it and realizing that, you know, this idea that someone who is suicidal will just find another way, that's wrong. All the evidence has proven that that's false. So if you take away the lethal means that they can take their own life, they can get help. And so it's getting people to realize that that is the case and there's more education about it. And I think people are finally coming around and realizing that this is a good idea. But there will always be those people who say, you know, it's too much money or it's really ugly. Right. So you you have developed a specialty of like really going in and doing these narrative stories that highlight a broader issue in society by going really deep into one family. So how did you go about reporting this story? Yeah. So before I even start on these stories, I ask the people that I'm writing about for complete access because that's the only way that it's going to work. If for whatever reason they feel like they don't want to share everything or that they're going to stonewall in some way, it's not going to be a compelling story. So what does it mean to you to have complete access? Yeah. So for this story, um, Kyle's older brother, Emmanuel, gave me all of his journal entries for the month that his brother committed suicide. And I read through all of those. And then the family helped me get all of the reports relating to Kyle's death. So the coroner's report, the investigative death report, all of those pieces. And they were very forthcoming. Every single question that I asked, they answered all the way down to, well, what color was Kyle's backpack? You mentioned that he left his backpack at home. Well, what did it look like? Which can be I think from the outside a little weirder probing sometimes. And um, just because I had had that conversation with them from the start, they were very understanding. And we're like, okay, we know there's a purpose for this. I don't really know why right now. but. <laughs> and how long did you work with Kyle's family before you were able to publish the story? So I started working on this story in August, kind of on the back burner because I had some other stories that I was working on. And... Then the campfire happened, so I was gone for a couple of months, and this got pushed back. And there was this nice little quiet period at the beginning of January where I was finally able to finish writing it. So off and on for a couple of months. So one of the things about reporting about suicide is there have been a lot of, of trends uh, in how journalists write about suicide. Uh, you know, maybe a decade ago, we were basically told that if you write about suicide, it will encourage copycat suicides. And then we and some other people did a lot of stories about suicide on the Golden Gate Bridge because there are some weeks where one or two or more people jumped to their deaths off the bridge and it became such a public health crisis that we really thought that we couldn't responsibly ignore it anymore. And now we in the Chronicle have 
rules about how we report about suicide. And one of those rules is that in every story, we have to mention how if you are suicidal or think you might want to take your own life, you should get help. And that is by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You can reach a counselor at a locally operated crisis center 24 hours a day, and it's free. And you can also text CONNECT to 741741 and also reach a crisis counselor. How did you want to go about writing about this very sensitive subject? I wanted to do it really compassionately. I think there is a lot of pushback to the kind of ticker tape type reporting about suicide where for a while they asked us to stop publishing the counts of people who are jumping off the bridge because it created this type of suicide ideation. And that is not what I wanted. I wanted to give more context and help people understand why this is an issue now and why this suicide net is really important to think about and to go up because, I mean, even one life, that is one family's life. That's their son. It's their brother. And I wanted to really viscerally put our readers in that position of knowing what it is like to lose someone so suddenly and unexpectedly when it felt like it could have been prevented. And you do this, like, you have a unique ability to find the details in a story that just, like, really, like, just make you want to wither as a reader. And in this story, for me, it was the fact that Kyle went and to, went to McDonald's and got an orange juice, and then he drove to the bridge playing a certain song, and then he yelled Yahoo as he jumped. And then contrasting that with the parents literally having no idea at all and going about their daily day um, because it was so unexpected. So how do you get those details? How does it even occur to you to ask what did he order at McDonald's? Yeah, it started with a feeling for me where I just found it so devastating that his parents' life lives, they were continuing on for four hours and they just had no idea. They didn't know that Kyle was gone. And I found that so heartbreaking and so I wanted to make that contrast as clear as possible. And that meant really putting you in his parents' days. Being with Kimberly Renee as she's flipping through photos of her family with her coworker over lunch and getting home and realizing her husband was getting home at the same time and how rare and special that was. And then also really vividly being with Kyle, seeing him go through that McDonald's drive through eating his last meal, um, seeing how much cash he had in his wallet. I think all of those things make someone that I was not able to interview and will never know more real. One of the things I think is our job at the Chronicle, unlike maybe national media, is we live in this community and these are our neighbors and it's really a very close to home feeling for us. Now we were talking about some of the documents you used for telling this story. And you, you said at one point you couldn't even be in the same room as the documents themselves. Do you want to tell everyone about that? Yeah. So I I request a lot of documents for a lot of stories that are very sad. And it's just easier to get them sent to my house because I end up traveling a lot for different stories or I feel like they get lost in the Chronicles mailroom somewhere. We do have a very messy mailroom. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's something about that where it's always it almost feels a little violating for me where I'll get these big manila envelopes and I'm like, mm, this is going to be really sad. So I got to the point where I just couldn't sleep in the same room as them. 
they would be sitting on my desk and it felt like there were ghosts in the room and I found it really disturbing. So I had to put them in a drawer in the kitchen and that's like the sad drawer. I have a lot of different death reports and autopsy reports in there for different stories that I've worked on and that is their home. That is where they stay. You know, it's so funny because if you, if anyone meets you, you're like a perpetual ray of sunshine all the time. You're always smiling in the newsroom. And yet you do these stories that are just so crushingly sad, whether it's about the wildfires or this bridge story. How do you like compartmentalize all of this stuff personally? I think I'm still trying to figure that out in a lot of ways. I try to find the humanity in it and that gives me an incredible amount of hope just having this deeper understanding of what other people are going through and that makes it feel like the work that I'm doing is more meaningful which makes it easier to kind of carry these weights but I'm also slowly kind of learning to talk about it more I think in the beginning so many people led me to believe that you know I shouldn't be upset by these things or that it made me less of a journalist, and I very much just stopped talking about it and pretended like it wasn't there. I even went to a therapist at one point, and he was like, you know, if it really upsets you this much, maybe you shouldn't talk about it. And I've realized that that's not the case. So what really helps me is, you know, I have a couple of coworkers and an editor that I can talk to and just say, you know, this story was really sad, and I feel sad because this family lost their son. And I feel like I can see what that grief is like from the inside more now because I lived it with them for a little while and just realizing that these stories carry weight and it's all about how you carry it. It doesn't have to be really crippling. And, you know, I, I think another thing about suicide on the bridge that we forget sometimes is it's not just the families that are affected by this. It's the people on the bridge who notice it. I remember one of the first calls when I worked at the Chronicle was from a fisherman who called the newsroom and started screaming at me because somebody had jumped and almost landed on his boat. And it was such a horrible experience. And we didn't write about it. And he just thought that was crazy. And I had to explain to him, like, this happens, unfortunately, with a high degree of regularity. And, you know, I think we think just about the families, but it really touches everybody in the Bay Area in one way or another. Yeah, I read a really recent, a really interesting article recently about someone who painted the bridge and how often he sees people jump. I think trauma has a ripple effect and you look at, you know, it impacts the families, it impacts the people who work on the bridge, it impacts the people who nearly get hit in the water. Like in this story, Kyle's body was found by two people on a sailboat. And I thought about them a lot, wondering what that was like to look over and realize that there was this person in the water next to them. And I think that's that's a big reason why it's so important to tell these stories because it impacts so many people. It's not just one family. It doesn't happen in an isolation chamber. Do you still talk to Kyle's family? Yeah, so Kimberly Renee and I are Facebook friends. So I always see her reports, and um, she's a, a fire spotter. She she does so much. She She's a very impressive woman. So we'll talk about wildfires and stuff like that. Your like, other passion. My other passion. Wildfires. Yeah. And then the photographer that I worked with, um, she sent Kimberly Renee a Christmas card and Kimberly Renee sent one back. So we still stay in contact. That's awesome. So again, if anyone out there is listening and thinks that you need help or you know of somebody who may need help, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one 800 273 
8255. You get a locally operated crisis center counselor 24 hours a day, and it's free. You can also text the word CONNECT to 741741 and also get a crisis counselor. Lizzie, thank you so much for doing the story and for coming on Fifth and Mission. Thank you. Thank you, Lizzie Johnson, for joining us on the show, and thank you for everybody listening to Fifth and Mission. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Well, exactly. And we have some really talented reporters. We have a few talented editors. And we are going to be focusing on...